That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Sometimes you see things that are just so ridiculous, you, you go, that, that can't be right. There has to be more to the story. I saw one of those things this morning. And, and it doesn't happen that often. Like, often I'll look at a story, a development, some breaking news, a punishment that a team or a league levies, and I'll go, oh, that makes sense. I understand why they're doing that. But in the case of Major League Baseball, the case of Pete Bayer makes no sense. Now, I want you to tell me, I'm going to try to, like, I'm as I do with all these stories, I'm going to stay objective. I'm going to stay above the fray until the fray will not allow me to do that anymore. Like, baseball, you know, is interested in making the game more interesting more offense banning shifts pitch clock speed it up like the batter can't step out of the box now and uh, between every pitch and fix their batting glove put the bat down adjust the straps look around the stadium you know fix their hat then step back into the box and wait you know they're they're doing away with that in fact the uh, the new pitch clock rule that they're going to implement in spring training and by the way spring training for major league baseball is going to be messy it is going to be rife with balks penalties strikeouts where a pitch isn't thrown because the batter didn't get into the box and uh, the rules now say you have to be in the box you got to be alert ready to hit within uh, about seven seconds, eight seconds of being there. And if you're not in that position, the umpire can call an automatic strike. If the pitcher uh, disengages from the pitching rubber uh, more than twice, they cannot throw over to first base or any base unless they successfully pick off the runner. Otherwise, it's a balk. You, you're following that? Like I, I think it's putting a lot of pressure on the umpires because the umpires are going to have to say, Okay, he steps off once, that's okay, he can throw over to first. Steps off the rubber a second time, uh-oh, green light, can no longer throw to first base, second base, third base, uh, can't disengage with the rubber unless they successfully pick off the base runner. So if I'm on first base and the pitcher is already disengaged from the pitching rubber twice, what am I doing? I'm going to lengthen out my lead because if he throws over and he doesn't pick me off, I'm getting second base. And uh, if he throws to home plate, I've got a big lead. I might just steal second. It's going to be interesting to watch spring training. What I'm saying is it's going to be messy. But all of that is designed to, uh, to uh, you know, create offense in the game. 
take away the advantages, the pitchers have become dominant. The batting averages in Major League Baseball have been on a decline in the last 10 years, and they're historically low. We're getting more strikeouts. We're getting lower batting averages collectively by the hitters in baseball. The pitchers are too good. Not since Bob Gibson climbed up on that raised pitching mound and uh, po posted an ERA that was ridiculous have pitchers enjoyed such an advantage in Major League Baseball. But what I think baseball needs right now is a dose of common sense. And I wrote it today at johnconzano.com. I saw this tweet from a minor league pitcher named Pete Bayer that caught my attention, played his college ball at Cal Poly Pomona. And this is a guy that was in the equivalent of high A ball, single A, and, uh, you know, enjoying life as a minor league player, young guy, when the pandemic hit. And the onset of the pandemic in 2020 was a weird time in professional baseball because minor league baseball got restructured after the 2019 season. You may remember the Hillsborough Hops and Salem and Eugene were all part of this restructuring. Baseball used the break after the 2019 season to eliminate 42 minor league franchises in two minor league classifications, they tightened their belt a little bit and said, hey, we need we have too many players, we have too many teams. And minor league baseball went out of business during the pandemic. Remember, minor league baseball did not play. They shut down. The players who did not have bonuses did not get paychecks. They did not, uh, they did not have benefits. They had no income. A lot of the players used that break to retire. Some of them uh, got jobs working for UPS or Home Depot. Some others yet uh, decided to move back in with their parents. Uh, I read a story in the Wall Street Journal about a AAA pitcher who worked part-time as a landscaper in Arizona. Like, all these minor league players were going, hey, we don't know what's going to happen. They're restructuring minor league baseball. Uh, we are not under contract. We have no benefits. We have no income. And uh, this player I'm talking about, Pete Bayer, he, uh, while he was not under contract as a professional baseball player in the summer of 2020, he made a mistake. Now, Pete Bayer, I think, is going to tell you, oh, yeah, he's coming on the show in just a couple minutes. He's going to tell you that he signed up for a legal sports wagering app in the state of Colorado. He's going to tell you he didn't play in any baseball games. He didn't coach in any baseball games. He wasn't around any of the teams. But he played, placed some bets on Major League Baseball games. Uh, he uh, said on a social media post this morning that, you know, he didn't know what to do with himself. He had spent all his summers playing baseball and competing and playing. And so, you know, using an app that would be available to anybody living in Colorado while not working as a professional baseball player, not under contract, Bayer bet on some Major League Baseball games. Pandemic ends the Cincinnati Reds reach out to him in early 2021 and they say we'd like to sign you to a contract he signs the contract he's finally employed again he starts working out in preparation for spring training and a few weeks later he gets a call from the commissioner's office and they inform him that he's under investigation and suspended immediately for wagering on major league baseball games now he was gambling well, unemployed. That's probably not wise. I wouldn't recommend it. But it's not a crime, and it shouldn't have cost him his livelihood. 
Major League Baseball has rules. We all know, Pete Rose, we all know the rules of Major League Baseball, but I looked it up. It's Rule 21D. Players, umpires, club, and league officials who bet on baseball will be suspended for one year. Also, it says any player, umpire, club, or league official, or employee who bets on a baseball game that they have connection with and have a duty to perform in shall be declared permanently ineligible. That's Pete Rose. Now, the guy I'm talking about, you know, he, uh, Pete Bear, he did not have a duty to perform. He wasn't an umpire. He wasn't a club official. He wasn't under a contract. He owned his actions, nevertheless. He apologized to the commissioner's office. He met with a psychologist upon request of Major League Baseball. He talked with investigators. They told him, hey, apply for reinstatement after the World Series in 2022. He did that this week. Major League Baseball informed Mr. Bear that he is suspended for the entire 2023 season as well. He broke a rule. There are consequences to his actions. But I am a little bit puzzled with Major League Baseball. Look around baseball. Khalil Lee, Syracuse minor league player. He was a, He's accused of choking a woman, kicking a woman, pulling her hair. He's under investigation for that crime. And also, he has an invitation to spring training for the New York Mets. Mike Clevenger in, uh, in Chicago, White Sox pitcher. He's being accused of choking his, his wife while she's pregnant. Uh, and Major League Baseball is saying they're going to let that investigation run its course before deciding if Clevenger can play or not. Trevor Bauer's eligible to play. But a minor league player who bet on a game that he wasn't in contact with, while not being under contract, is suddenly the enemy of the estate in baseball? Like, look around baseball. DraftKings, Bet365, BetMGM, the official gaming operator, Major League Baseball. DraftKings has been in business with Major League Baseball for a decade. The Reds themselves signed a deal this offseason, making BetMGM the official gambling partner of the club. They're reaping the benefit of a partnership with a sports gambling entity but a player they wanted to sign who wasn't under contract, who happened to be legally wagering in another state, is suddenly ineligible? The Washington Nationals, they have a sports book in their home ballpark. First retail sports book connected to a Major League Baseball stadium, open last season. The, the problem that, that this guy has, and he's coming on the show to talk about it, in my view, he's a single-A pitcher, and the problem he has is simply that he wasn't a better player. A higher-profile player who garnered more attention, I think, would have been reinstated after a year. But baseball, interested in shift bands and pitch clocks and pickoff limits, uh, you know, it's decided that Pete Bear is the enemy. This guy that, again, was unemployed. It was like you or me. I kind of wonder, like if if Stephen is a you know decides like you know the the movie The Rookie, it happens to Stephen. He's out playing catch, and all of a sudden somebody sees him and says, "Man, you could really throw it." Stephen can throw 97 miles an hour. All of a sudden, got a great fastball. Scout signs him. Then they go, "Well, Stephen uh, wagered on some games 
in the NBA or Major League Baseball last year, well, he's ineligible now. It's just a silly rule. It's, it's hypocritical, too, at best, as you see the outfield signage with the DraftKings Sportsbook sign in the Washington Nationals Park and in the Reds Park and in Major League Baseball's uh, parks around the country. Uh, it's really a, a silly rule. I'm interested to find out what's going to happen with Pete Bear. He's going to join us next. He's agreed to come on the show. I know you're going to hear this guy's name. Uh, multiple national media outlets, he told me this morning, have reached out to him. He's coming on our show to talk about this. I want you here for it. The hypocrisy of Major League Baseball on full display. Next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, I've given you some of the backstory on Peter Bear's battle with Major League Baseball. It's mind-numbing. Feels like, I kind of feel like Peter Bear got in line at DMV, and he's been there for three years trying to figure out, like, hey, man, how do I just get out of this and get back into uh, the real world? Major League Baseball, I think, is being petty and absurd, but I'll let you hear it from Peter Bayer himself. Uh, uh, and we have lost him. So let's uh, try to get him back on. His call is dropped. So, uh, look, he is a guy that went to college at Cal Poly Pomona and pitched in the A's organization in minor league baseball. And I got to know what he started doing during the pandemic as he went back to Colorado. But evident that one of the things that he did do is he placed a legal wager on Major League Baseball games while not under contract as a minor leaguer. Remember, minor league baseball went into this. Uh, it was like a mattress store in 2019-2020. Going out of business, minor league baseball shut down. They were restructuring. Even uh, We were even affected by that here in the state of Oregon as you know the, my, the single A team in Salem was the Giants organization. It folded up. The, they used that time during the pandemic, Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball, used that time to streamline Minor League Baseball. They got rid of 42 franchises, two classifications, and in the end, uh, I think Peter Bear got caught in the middle of a bad situation, and he's joining us now. Peter, thanks for making time for us, man. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. <laughs> give me, give me an idea. I, I gave kind of the backstory from twenty thousand feet, but let's go back to, you know, your last season pitching in the A's organization. You, uh, you, you know, baseball comes to this screeching halt. What do you do for work? What do you do to stay busy when that happens? Right. So when baseball got, you know postponed and everything the minor league season got canceled in 2020 i've been working as a throwing like a throwing coach basically it's like a pitching coach in the off season so i've worked with a few different facilities and i've done like pitching instruction and uh worked with you know various athletes from like youth high school college even like some professional athletes and things like that so that's pretty much what i was doing as well as like you know training on my own uh time in the gym as well yeah, I've seen stories of guys who became, they went to work as landscapers, and some people retired because they were just like, hey, I, I can't take a year off. Uh, uh, did you get, did the clubs pay you anything? Did you get paid for any part of that time, or what happened? 
See, that was what's crazy about the whole situation is I was actually affiliated technically with the Oakland Athletics at the time of uh, 2020, and they were one of like three or four MLB teams that actually wasn't paying their players during the time of this entire situation as well. So I was kind of fighting um, on the front lines with that, with that, um, pushing things on social media with that. They finally, like towards the end of the summer, like backdated everything and like ended up paying us like the minor league salary or whatever, which, you know, it isn't much, but at least it was something. Um, but yeah, they, they were one of like the few teams that like really wasn't even paying us at all. And we got a, um, we got a, a letter uh, an email from the organization, and this was um, right about a couple weeks after uh, we all got sent home with uh, the pandemic. It was like end of March. We got a letter saying that our minor league player contracts were suspended, and then they would let us know when um, they were going to reinstate them. They ended up not even reinstating the player contracts until like February of 2021. So, like, contracts were suspended, weren't really paid. Got ended up getting paid, but just a really weird scenario. Kind you go back, yeah, unprecedented. And you go back to that time, Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball starts to restructure. They get rid of some teams. Um, you are obviously not competing. You're sitting at home, and you decide you're going to place some legal wagers on some MLB games, maybe some other sports as well? Yeah, um, it was a time where, I, I mean, I was talking to a lot of my peers and a lot of us were kind of questioning whether or not we were going to continue to play baseball just with, like, exactly what you're saying, how much they're going to shrink the, uh, shrink the teams and the system and all that. I actually received a call before I was released from the A's, before I even placed these bets, saying that I was kind of on a list of guys that was most likely going to be like a, um, you know, a, a fallout of this whole thing, and I was probably going to get released. I ended up getting released in September, but they called me, you know, early, you know, May, June-ish, before I even placed the wagers, kind of saying, you know, probably going to end up being a casualty here. And um, so, yeah, I had, like, sports betting was just becoming legal in Colorado. That's where I was living during the time with my family. I'm from just outside of Denver. And uh, just decided to download some legal sports uh, sports um, betting applications, and I placed some wagers on baseball games, on other sports. Um, just you know, I was surrounded by a lot of my friends that were doing the same thing. Um, it's just a very very popular thing in today's day and age, and kind of just got bombarded with you know all the ads and uh, being on TV all the time. And I just thought, you know, what the heck. Um, you know, I'm probably going to get released anyway. I ended up getting released and, you know, just thought, you know, I wasn't really going to get caught. I didn't really think anything of it. And, uh, yeah, that's that was that. Fast forward, pandemic ends. It's early 2021. You, The Cincinnati Reds reach out to you. They want to sign you to a contract. Is the gambling thing even on your mind at that point, or are you thinking I wasn't under contract, that was, you know, last summer, no one's going to even know about it? Um, so it was kind of on my mind. There's something that got let out, like, like kind of didn't really like discuss in the complete detail, but it was in reality how the MLB found out about this. Mm -hmm. Um, essentially I was placing, I placed a wager on a soccer game over the summer. The bet got graded incorrectly by the website. So I sent it an email to the Colorado gaming division who kind of oversees all of the, 
all the bets that come in and out. So I sent in an email. I said, hi, this application graded the bet incorrectly. It's like standard procedure that you contact the gaming division, and they got it situated. However, um, this was month that I did that probably in July. Uh, fast forward to like October, um, November-ish before the Reds had signed me, I did receive a call from the Colorado Division of Gaming saying, do you know that you're a major league player and you or like you're not a major league player, but like you are affiliated with the MLB and we have record of you betting on baseball. We went back and like looked up all your records, which I don't even know if they're allowed to do that or not, but it was based off of that one email that I sent in. Oh, man. And then they and then sent all the reports and all of my wagers to the MLB. I didn't know that they were actually going to go and say anything to the MLBs, but like they didn't tell me that they were going to say anything to the MLB. So, you know, I kept training. I signed to the Reds, and then – whether, you know, like a week after I signed to the Reds, I don't know if they were, like, following my career or something, the gaming division, but they ended up uh, sending in a report to the MLB, and that's when everything kind of compiled. That had to cost you some sleep because you know baseball rules, and I looked it up, and the rules say if you are a player, an umpire, a club or league official, and you bet on a baseball game, um, it, it is a one-year suspension. If 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 it's a game you play in, it could be permanent. Um, So I think tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, but your stance here is, you know, you did something. If they apply the letter of the law, that that uh, you could be punished for. But now you're looking at is it now three seasons that you would have lost? Yeah. So I was kind of. When they originally called, I looked into the rules and I said I was a little bit upset because I was saying similar things as I was saying now. And the MLB originally called me about this and told me I was going to be placed on the um, ineligible list. I said, well, technically I wasn't under a player contract. And they came back with, well, there's a rule that says in a in a case of an emergency or a national disaster or some crazy events you're still obligated to follow the contract. So even with that, I said, can't you just, you have the information, can't I accept a one-year suspension? And they said, no, we have to investigate this. And they were hounding me on, like, who, who, who else do you know that's doing this? And I don't know if I got caught up in, like, this large investigation that led to mm-hmm. nowhere for them, but yeah. it took them, like, a long, long time. They called it I was under an investigation, and they couldn't come to, a like, a, official ruling until the investigation was complete or something like that. So I believe the first year, this was 2021, I was technically on like the restricted list. I wasn't like listed as ineligible, but like I was like under investigation and that process took like 14 months where they were like ignoring me. They didn't talk to me at all. They kept saying like, you know, it's going to be weeks or months or something like that. Like, so I was, continuing to stay in shape and try to throw. And then it wasn't until like the beginning of 2022 where I was placed on the ineligible list for all of 2022. And then now I'm placed on the ineligible list for all of 2023. So it's ineligible list technically for like this year and for last year. And then for 2021, it was technically the ineligible list because they were just basically like holding me in a limbo, but like they weren't allowing me to talk to anybody, sign with anyone, do anything. Wow. What, you know, again, we're talking to Peter Bear, professional baseball player. 
what uh, legal advice did you get? Did you immediately talk to a lawyer? You know, what what was the reaction um, or response you had? Originally, I didn't bring in any attorney. Um, I kind of was trying to talk to them on my own because the initial conversations they uh, they said and quote like um, it'll be a couple of months before you know we reach a decision. So I said, okay, I'll like wait a few months. And then as it got into like later in the summer, I just decided to hire an attorney and just so that someone would talk to me from the MLB. So I had an attorney on, on a retainer for about a year while we were able to kind of communicate with the MLB and finally get them talking and get them doing something, which worked. But like all it was was, you know, them calling my attorney like once every few months saying, you know, we'll update you when we know, when we have an update. They were just very vague. Um, and then it wasn't until recently that the MLBPA um, started helping me because now minor leaguers are kind of represented under that. And so the last four or five months, the MLBPA took over and has been handling everything since then. The latest communication you got from Rob Manfred's office basically says to you that your application to be reinstated is denied and you can apply again after the World Series. Um, I, this is where I feel like you're caught because they are, uh, they're just going to give you the runaround and in the meantime you've got a window to participate that is narrowing. Um, how does it feel to you to be caught into this? What do you think baseball is afraid of? Um, I'm not really sure. I don't have the answers to that. Um, I just think uh, maybe it's a slippery slope for them where if they are to say, hey, uh, you're allowed back, um, then technically it's not like a, a banned thing anymore and like mm. people might start participating in it more. I don't know. I mean, I think if anyone would think they're going to get suspended for three years, it would be, you know, enough to kind of scare them away from that. Um, so, I don't know, but it, it is really hard because when 20, like before the pandemic hit, I mean, I was um, pitching in some major league spring training games, PAs, um, probably going to break the double A. I was 25, you know, things were really, really, really looking positive in my career. Like my 2019 season was pretty good in the Cal league. And, um, you know, to have that season get shut down was really tough. And then like how my, I like, the way my career is like most likely going to end because I mean, I kind of know at this point, just with my age being out of the game for this many years, um, borderline impossible to get back in, especially with how the minor league system is kind of, uh, has very much shrunk. Um, that's why I kind of decided to go public with this finally, because, um, most likely like not, I'm not going to say a hundred percent sure, but going to be done playing, um, barring a miracle. Um, but the, the thing is, is, you know, I've built a very good resume to stay involved in the game, coach, work in player development, work in pitching development. I have a very good background in it. And it would be really sad for me to not even be allowed to do that, which this ineligible list thing is preventing me from as well. So that's where it kind of um, becomes hard is, you know, I thought that my career definitely would have been significantly different if, uh, you know, all of us didn't really get sent home that year. Do you, uh, did you bet on games prior to that, or is that when your wagering started? Uh, I never did. Uh, when I was playing or when I was technically under a contract, 
Um, it never occurred, and they have no record of it. Um, I never did it. Um, the only thing that they have a record of is me wagering on baseball games over the span of a couple months over the 2020 summer. I feel like you're caught in, like, the web that, you know, they want to keep Pete Rose in, you know, and it's like you look around the league and, you know, baseball's got yeah. some problems. You know, you've got domestic violence, you've got, uh, sex assault, you've got PEDs, you've got the Astros in the World Series stealing signs, and feels like this mm-hmm. is the hill they're climbing up on. It's, it's, it, it's a little absurd. Um, the, the, so, yeah. the length to which you went to, can you talk to us maybe about, you know, were these large wagers? What were you betting on a game? Um, I mean, I'm not going to disclose, like, the amount. Um, it wasn't anything, like, significant. It wasn't very big. It was mostly, I believe... Their con- the MLB's concern was, like, the amount of bets mm. rather than, like, the actual dollar amount. I'm not really um, for sure on that. But, I mean, there was records, and MLB does have record of, I believe, like, over 30 or 40 games that I did bet on. Um, that happened over the span of about two, two months, July, August of 2020. And uh, since then, uh, nothing. And... Uh, Nothing before them, nothing after them. Um, but I, they they did come back with. Um, I did receive like one of the uh, reporters actually like received um, like a statement back from the MLB, and they basically said that uh, after a thorough investigation, it was determined that Mr. Bear repeatedly bet on baseball in violation of our policy, and therefore he was placed on the ineligible list. Um, so. There's really, that's kind of what transpired there was, I guess, the, um, like, amount of bets. I mean, I personally, like, I don't want to say the amount because I, it wasn't very much. I'm a, I, I'm a minor league player. Right. I don't make that much money. So, I mean, it was nothing uh, substantial. I, I, I am disappointed with Major League Baseball. I feel like they should evaluate this in, under a different prism than maybe Shoeless Joe Jackson, right? Like, this doesn't feel like it's that big a deal. And I'm looking at stadium agreements with BetMGM and DraftKings, and how does that make you feel when you see the, the business partnerships that Major League Baseball has engaged in? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely uh, a lot of hypocrisy there. I think the thing that's the most frustrating about the whole process to me is being held to the same standard as somebody that was a major league player, um, somebody that's making, you know, that much money, that's uh, playing an actual season, that's part of the fraternity that is major league baseball. And I was simply just a minor league player, not even under a contract, um, able to collect unemployment, like physically was collecting unemployment as well as, you know, most of the minor league players and being held to the same rules as those guys, um, it just doesn't really make – that's what doesn't doesn't make sense to me. Um, that's the thing that I think is the uh, craziest part about the entire situation is, you know, I'm willing to accept and I was willing to accept punishment for my actions. I believe, you know, I knew what I was doing was a little bit long, um, but I don't believe that uh, – what I did, um, you know, should have been that big of a penalty, uh, especially with, you know, like you're saying, the um, the the partnerships they're doing now with 
um, how much money they're making off of those companies with, you know, the other things that a lot of MLB players got away with, like serious crimes, offenses, things like that. I mean, that all is just, it's absurd to me. Um, I don't think I should be held in the same light or this situation should be anything remotely close to the Pete Rose scandal. Um, I mean, that's a completely different thing. Like it shouldn't be like the, their decision on me um, should make no impact on how they handle that situation. It's literally like an apples to oranges um, scenario in my opinion. It's, it's, uh, it makes me sad for your career. And uh, there's part of, you know, I grew up in a baseball family and it just it shouldn't have ended this way. It should have ended on a field with either someone telling you to go home or you, or you making it to the big leagues. It not with Major exactly. League Baseball going, "Hey, you bet on 30 games while you you know, while the season was suspended and uh you were not affiliated with a team at the time technically. I mean, you're collecting unemployment. It's just it's sort of ridiculous. Uh have you lawyered up again or is there a potential here for a settlement from Major League Baseball? I, I hope so. Um, I haven't like gotten to the details with with that yet, but I am in the process of uh, reaching out to some people in the Players Association that are recommending some attorneys to me that might be willing to provide information on if we can fight this. Um, but I do hope that uh, it does end up working out where like a settlement happens, where you know I file a lawsuit against them and I'm able to win, win this in court because uh, in reality, um, I don't really know how I should be like held to the standard of having to follow this contract with such an unprecedented situation. I mean, with how COVID was kind of like how, you know, big of a deal that was for a lot of people and, you know, how, you know, those contracts work. I mean, I feel like there's, there's some room in there where the court, could possibly decide in my favor, but I haven't like dug into the details too too much on that yet. But it is something that I want to pursue for sure. Peter, I want you to stay in touch, man. Keep us updated. Uh, you know, I hope we put some some sunshine on this thing, and I hope Major League Baseball comes to its senses. For sure, yeah. Thank you for having me on anytime. You bet, Peter Bear. There he is, Stephen. Uh, before we go to break, real quick. I want your reaction to it. You're a gambler. You're a guy who puts a couple bucks on a game now and then. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, first of all, I do feel bad that it's sort of ruined his career, right? Like, yep. I don't think it deserves that. But I also think that MLB is being put in a spot where if they let this go, what does it – like, when does it stop? If a player right. – if a player's, Slippery slope. Right. Yep. If a player's contract is up – can he, you know, let's just say a good player, let's say Mike Trout becomes a free agent or Shohei Otani, can he, when he's not contracted by the Angels, can he go out and make a future bet on a team and then go sign with that team and have it be made up bigger? So, like, I do, I, I, I totally feel for the guy, but I also feel like he did make a mistake and yeah. he felt like his career was over anyways. During COVID, he even said that, like, I felt like my career was over, so he was looking to go do different things. And now because... He feels like, oh, I got one more shot at me. Someone contacted me. This shouldn't matter when, in fact, it does matter that you yeah. went against it. Like, the, the rules are very clear. You cannot engage in any betting when you're in any sport. So, he, But I, here's my point is, okay, I, I hear him saying I'm willing to accept the punishment. And baseball rules say uh, that if you bet on a game, you're ineligible for – you're suspended for one year. My confusion is 
why they didn't immediately suspend him. They investigated. They put it off. Then they say, okay, now you're you're ineligible. But, you know, Pete Rose got declared permanently ineligible because he bet on games that he was connected to. That's a different rule. That That's actually on the books, too. I'm just, I'm like, hey, give him the one-year suspension. That, you know, that's your precedent. And anybody else who does it is suspended for a year. But he's now going on year number three. Well, you got a bunch of guys in this league who have banged on trash cans and uh, been accused of domestic violence who are out there going to spring training. Yeah, unfortunately, John, because I agree with you, um, and he mentioned too, like all the bad things that happened, I wish those players got suspended more and punished more, but that doesn't hurt the integrity of the game like gambling does, where it feels like we want to feel like sports is one of those things that is truly decided on the field and not manipulated with. And so for him to bet on games, it is somewhat violated the integrity of the game, which sounds so bad because you see all these bad things that happen, but like Deshaun Watson, what he does off the field has no effect on the field. You know what I'm saying? 503, yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. 503-417-7575. How out in left field is Major League Baseball? Do you believe that the punishment for Mr. Bear fits the crime? Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. The curious case of Peter Bear. There's so much to unpack there. I bet he's kicking himself, uh, of course, for uh, placing wagers on MLB games. But how about the fact that he got caught when he wrote an email to the gaming commission in Colorado <laughs> trying to make sure, hey, they incorrectly rated my bet. Like that, I just slapped my forehead. It says more about the the, you know, the gaming industry, that they can't yeah. even get the bet right. <laughs> they can't get the bet right, and then they Google him, or you know, they do a little research on who's this guy emailing, complaining about the way the bet was paid, and they go, this guy's not supposed to be betting. He's a pitcher. He's a minor league pitcher. And Major League Baseball um, jumps all over it. I feel bad for the guy. I do think he deserved a punishment, but I think it should have been the letter of Major League Baseball's rule. If you are determined to have wagered on a game, not a game you're involved in, it is supposed to be one year ineligible. He's now going on third, his third year. Yeah, Josh is – yeah, I was go ahead. Say, I do agree with yeah. you on this fact that MLB is just kicking the can down the road, yeah. and they need to make a decision, either suspend him permanently or yeah. reinstate him. It's the same thing. They're waiting for Pete Rose to die before they put him in the Hall of Fame. Exactly. I mean, it's yeah. – they're just – you know, let, they, we want to put him in the Hall of Fame, but we don't want him – to know he gets the satisfaction of the Hall of Fame. Josh is in Vancouver. Josh, uh, welcome to the conversation. Hey, John. Thanks, man. Hey, uh, it's funny. You know, I'm listening to the interview, and before he came on, um, you had me super intrigued, man. And, like, I immediately, like, with how you laid the story out, like, I had uh, my first initial reaction just on how how you set the table for us was, is that this was probably somebody that I was going to feel super bad about mm-hmm. and that Major League Baseball was taken taken advantage of. But at the immediate beginning of his interview, he said something that I immediately thought, okay, this guy's not super innocent here. And the right. thing that he said that kind of made me take a step back was when he said, when I got the call, uh, the first thing I thought was, is am I going to get caught? 
And, like, it's hard to feel super bad for the guy. Like, I would totally agree that Major League Baseball, if they've got a one-year suspension policy, like, handle things in an expedited manner and a reasonable manner and suspend them for a year, you know, follow the own letter of the, the law that you have written. Like, that's something that Major League Baseball has to do. But on the same token, like, this guy absolutely knew the minute he got another opportunity that what he did was wrong and the thought jumped into his mind he was going to get caught. So I I did have – going through the entire rest of the interview, I I found myself really having a hard time um, feeling super bad for the guy other than the the idea that Major League Baseball, I feel like, is overdoing it and is is using him as this ridiculous, um, you know, sacrificial example – you know, over something that is, quite frankly, not near as important as some of the issues they have going on. Right, and and I think and I think you're right on because I look when I lay out the case for Peter Bear. Here's the here are the facts. He was a minor league baseball player who was under contract. The pandemic hits. He's in low level baseball. He says himself, when the pandemic hits, he's thinking this might be it for me. Baseball is, minor league baseball is restructuring. They used the break to eliminate 42 franchises. Uh, Baseball went out of business, essentially, in 2020, minor league baseball. During that stoppage, uh, the MLB clubs told players to apply for unemployment, and a bunch of players went off to do side hustles. Bear went home. He went home, and he made a mistake. And I think he's owning the mistake to a certain extent. He's, you know, it's a legal sports wagering app. If he had stuck to just soccer and not betting on roughly 30 Major League Baseball games, I don't think he would be here. I don't even think any of us would have ever heard of the guy. But um, I've swung from, in listening to him, I went, you know, if I'm his attorney, I don't want him talking to Major League Baseball because I think the attorney could make the better case, hey, Technically, these contracts were suspended. He's not under contract. He's not an MLB player. But, I mean, Stephen, you made a great point about what about a guy who retires? So if you're following the letter of the law, let's say Mike Trout retires. Then he goes off. He bets modestly. Let's just say he bets modestly on 25 or 30 Major League Baseball games. Then he decides he pulls a Tom Brady, decides he's going to come back. Does Major League Baseball hold Mike Trout to the same rules? Or do they judge him differently than a career minor leaguer or a guy who's, you know, nobody's ever heard of who's playing A-ball? Is Bear in trouble here because he's not a better player? Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Where do you guys think uh, Major League sports teams, how they should handle sponsorships with gambling entities, DraftKings with the NFL, FanDuel, DraftKings, BetMGM. You're seeing college campuses themselves form partnerships that are lucrative sponsorship agreements. You've got athlete endorsements for some of the wagering in, in fantasy football leagues. Uh, but 
uh, again, the integrity of the game. How do you balance that if you're a sports league? 503-417-7575. Peter Sampson, I haven't heard you weigh in on uh, the bear issue. Uh, the guest we had earlier, he acknowledges what he did was wrong. He got caught betting on Major League Baseball games. He uh, wants to be reinstated. I think Major League Baseball should reinstate him given the circumstances. I, I'm doubtful that they will, though, because I know the entities involved. Where do you stand on this, Peter? And and how do you manage this if you're a sports league that's got a partnership with a gambling entity? Yeah, it's it's really difficult because a lot of money coming in from those sports wagering companies. Uh, I'm it's a terrible answer for a talk show. I'm sort of in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> I think you both no. you both have, bring up great points. You and Stephen, who are sort of a a little bit on different sides. But I guess the big issue I have is like like look, he did something wrong. But it, Major League Baseball is just stringing this guy along. And that I don't like. So let's either, you know, allow him to, you know, repent for his mistake and he can come back or just say, no, you're done. You're banned for life. And then, you know, deal with the uproar there. So while I think part of the punishment is because he's not really a big name, this isn't Mike Trout. This isn't Shohei Otani. This is a single A player that sounds like he was kind of fringe anyway, even at that level. Right. Like, Ultimately, this is sort of a canary in the coal mine, though, for Major League Baseball, because this is going to happen with a name that people do know, so they should probably figure their stuff out. Yeah, I think they I think they need to look at it, because, you know, it. this isn't the Black Sox of 1919. We're in a different era. Like, Kennesaw Mountain Landis can't come in as commissioner of baseball and clean things up. So I, I feel like we're on a different, we're on different ground now. And I like that the kid, I call him a kid, I like that Bayer is acknowledging he did something wrong. But I think baseball, football, basketball, they better get square with the the rules that they have, what they're okay with. Apparently they're okay with athletes endorsing gambling entities, but they can't place wagers themselves. And what happens if you're betting on other sports? What happened? What degree? What you know? If you're betting on your own sport, yeah, huge problem there. But I don't, I don't like that athletes, you know, would be betting on any sport, because if you get in a position where you're upside down on your uh, financial commitment, like you know, you're dealing with people that could just say, hey, we need you to, you know, shave some points here, and we'll forgive your debt. Like I, I don't like any of it. But I think baseball is on shaky ground. Well, it's in partnership with some of these entities. Leave it here. You got the BFT. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. A lot of talk about. SMU possibly to the Pac-12 conference, conference expansion, something that comes up every day on this show. Been writing a lot about it, talking a lot about it. Our next guest, columnist at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram and an SMU professor. Nobody better or more qualified to talk about SMU and the way that they may or may not fit in the Pac-12 than Mac Engel, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, professor at SMU. He's joining us now. How are you? Uh, I can't complain, John, unless you want me to, and that's going to be a hell of a show. Love it. Uh, look, let's, let's, talk about, <laughs> let's talk about, you know, the, 
the overall enthusiasm in the SMU fan base. Uh, what do you uh, what do you hear? What do you see? What how has it changed in the last couple of months? Um, well, it really took a hit when Sonny Dykes left for TCU, and then he comes within a game of winning a national title, and his replacement, Rhett Lashley, who who did okay, uh, finishes seven and six. That hurt. Uh, that one that one left a mark, and um, you know it's really tough. You know when you see the guy who meant so much to putting your football program back in a really positive, nationally relevant state, and he leaves for the school uh, 35, 40 minutes away and then goes to the national title game, that, that hurts. Um, I think there's been a lot of positive momentum in the last couple of months, well, a month or so, because Rhett Lashley has really cleaned up in the transfer portal. He's getting a lot of kids uh, transferring from a lot of different places, which is one thing um, – uh, they had done under Sonny Dykes, and a lot of them are coming to Miami because that's where. Pardon me, that a lot of them are coming from Miami because that's where Rhett was um, before he came to Dallas as a head coach uh, at SMU. So I think it's getting better, and now it's all about the potential of joining the Big Twelve. Pardon me, the Pac-12. The Big Twelve doesn't want them. They don't because they they don't need them. They they don't need another small private school. They already have two. They don't want another one. If they're going to expand, they're going west, and they're going to try to pick off a Pac-12 school. That's just the way it is. So now the Pac-12, as you've talked about it, like you, you could talk about it every day, they're looking potentially at trying to grab some presence in the Midwest, the central part of the United States, in Texas, in Dallas. Uh, who, who can you get? SMU's that. So SMU according to people I talked to, has gone out of its way in trying to court a Pac-12 invitation, including saying, you don't have to give us we'll, – we'll cover the cost. Like, they're going above and beyond the norm of when a school is admitted to a new conference in terms of revenue-sharing distribution. They're going to take less. And that – now, how much less, that's, that, that's up for debate – but they're up for they're up for anything. They just want to be in the Pac-12, and the Pac-12 is basically saying, from what I understand, according to people who are in the Mountain Time Zone, uh, we're not so sure about this. We, we're not sure that this is going to really help secure us a larger media rights contract with whatever platform that wants to give them money. It, I, I think George Kliakoff is is trying to do the best he can with what's out there and trying to prevent. The Big 12 from raiding his, his 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 conference, but the idea that this is a done deal, at least from the people I talk to, is pretty premature. I agree with that. Uh, we're talking to Mac Engel, Fort Worth Star Telegram columnist. When George Kliavkov shows up at the SMU home basketball game a couple weeks ago, caused a stir. Uh, I'm I'm still trying to figure out why he was okay with being seen there. Was he just going there out of, uh, you know, a courtesy to the SMU boosters and administrators? Um, you know, is is there so much money on the table from the potential SMU community that he has to listen? Because he's not making that visit to some other places. No, and I was surprised he did it, too. And the idea that he could do it, you know, incognito or 
putting on a fuzzy mustache or a hat or whatever else. <laughs> I thought that was a little bit of a, I mean, you can't, you can't do that in this day and age. You just can't. It's going to get out, especially if you're going to sit in the same suite with the AD and the president of the school. I mean, if you're, if you're going to try to be subtle about it, then be subtle. Like fly in, meet him at the airport and leave. Don't go to campus, walk around and go to a game. I, I'm surprised he was a little brazen, as brazen as he was about it. Uh, and, and, and not brazen, that, that implies he was shameless. He wasn't shameless about it. He right. was out there with it. And I, I thought that was kind of bold, unnecessary. And I think, I think had he not done it, had he not been so visible, he might be further down the road with this, which is what he wants to be, because then it got out to the other, other conference institutions, and they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not sure this is a great idea. And I, I understand it, because if you're a conference, you want to be associated with the big schools. SMU is not big. It's got a ton of money. It's got plenty of uh, prestige and stature, and it's got a great affiliate. I mean, it's, it's in a great neighborhood. It is it's a great place. But it's really, really small. And they didn't fill that stadium up this year. I mean, most of these places aren't filling up anymore, anywhere. SMU's not. And even if they played Arizona State, uh, on a Saturday, that that's not going to guarantee uh, uh, a sellout. And I understand this isn't really about attendance as much as it is what can we present to um, a network. And I'm, I, you know, I, I get what he's trying to do. He, he, he's got to do what he can. And San Diego State would, you know, do whatever possible to be a part of it. The question is, would that secure Oregon, Washington, and whoever's left in charge of the Pac-12? And I think you know, John, way better than I do, it does not. Yeah, I don't think they have anywhere to go. That's the first thing is, you know, the invitation's not there for the Big Ten. I don't think they want to be traveling to Central Florida to go play games there in Louisville and other places. I think the I think Oregon-Washington will sit tight. I think the bigger question is, you know, does, does SMU – and does San Diego State add enough value? Does Dallas-Fort Worth and, uh, you know, about 1.2 million households in Southern Southern California move the needle enough for the networks? That's a big question. Um, the, it doesn't. You and I, but John, it, it, we, know, we know the answer. It doesn't. SMU and San Diego State were in the whack from 96 to 99 or 2000, whatever it was, right? Remember the whack was a 16 team and had eight, you know, it was, Thousand time zones: Hawaii, Houston, to Tulsa, TCU, SMU, New Mexico, blah blah blah, and they just they don't. And that's not an indictment on the schools. It's not. But we both know that in these particular markets, SMU is a small private school in a major metropolitan area that has eight billion things to do. And unless you have some affiliation with that university, you're not going to the games. You're going to the Cowboy games. You're going to high school, whatever. That's the way college athletics work, especially in major major metropolitan areas. They can't build T-shirt fans. TCU has been really, really good for 20 years. They didn't sell. They didn't sell that stadium out one time this year, mm-hmm. not once. It's 48,000 because the school is just so small. Now they had good crowds relative to the size of that stadium. It wasn't full. It just it wasn't because the school is really small. So you and I both know that SMU is not going to you know, draw eyeballs to TV sets. It's, just, it's not. So the hope is, what, what will this bring to us if we can have seven games at noon or 3.30 as opposed to 9 or 9.30? Yes. And 
and and and I you know I I can't blame them for trying, but I do think at the end of it I've seen this long, I've seen this as long as you have John. Dallas is one of those things in a college sense. It's it's not fool's gold, brother. This is a pro market. This is a pro town, and it's a Texas town. It's a Texas A&M town, and that's that. Yeah, I keep looking at the candidates in in. You know, I was told today that the Pac-12 has been arm's length with Boise State, so I'm kind of scratching them off the list, uh, penciling them out, you know, and Fresno State, I think, is in the same boat. I just think the brand of the Pac-12, they're not going to go for that. They're competing against those schools anyway for recruits. Why would they want to include them? Uh, I, I think San Diego State makes some sense, but it's not USC, UCLA. You look at UNLV, that's, you know, 700,000 TV households in the market, maybe growing, but, you know, unless the gambling partners are going to come in with a lot of money for you, uh, it you know, it doesn't move the needle either. SMU and Rice, I look at those markets, and you, you mentioned it, those are pro towns. So I, I think the only reason to add them is if your TV partner is saying, we want Dallas-Fort Worth, we want Southern California, and we need the inventory in order to close this deal. Uh, the uh, it, admission to the Pac-12, it means a lot to the to the donors and the boosters. Does it mean anything to the students on campus? Yeah, it does. It, it actually does. They, they want it. That's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, they, they want it. They want to be affiliated with bigger-time programs. It's fun, right? It is. It is more fun. You know, Washington, Oregon versus Washington is a fun game. Oregon versus Eastern Washington just isn't as much fun. Uh, and I'm, I'm picking, you know, I'm, I'm picking on Eastern Washington, but, but you, you get the yeah. idea. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think they all did. TC, I've seen TC go through this. You know, TC was really bummed about Texas and Oklahoma leaving. They all are because those are, those are signature games. You, know, you get big crowds for those things, and they're gone now. They're going to be gone in a year. And, you know, Houston's really good. Cincinnati's been really good. BYU's BYU. Uh, UCF, they've been, you know, they're they're spending a ton of money. It's just not the same. It's just not. There's like, I was talking to an AD about this the other day. There's like 20, maybe 25 schools that really run college athletics. Um, Oregon has a place at the table because of money and Phil Knight. Washington, maybe. But, you know, we know who those schools are, right? And those are the ones you want to play. So you can put your chest out and say, well, we beat them. With TCU beating Michigan, oh, my God. You can't imagine what that meant so much to these people in a national game like that. And that just meant everything. And, you know, you, you get limited opportunities to do that. So for SMU, yeah, for those, for those students and for the alums who, who really follow SMU athletics, yeah, it really would mean a lot to them. Do I think they're going to – but I, the thing that I think is going to ultimately happen, though, and this is just conversations I've had. And, and, you know, John, you know how it goes. Most of this, so much of this speculation is wrong. And right. Then, you know, it's, there's a hard left turn. But I don't know. If, if I'm the Pac-12, I hang tight with what I've got. Because I think what you've got is still pretty good. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd add SMU or not. I, I, I just don't think it does anything. I try to get one more, go back to 10, and try like hell to hang on to what you've got. Because I personally think what they've got is something cool and something special and something unique. And I, I don't think adding Boise, and I love Boise, I certainly don't think adding Fresno um, or SMU really does that much. San Diego, yeah, I'd give it a shot. But the Pac-12 has a real identity 
And I think you want to protect that, even if that means you have to take a little bit less. I think you want to protect it, but at the same time, revenue is revenue, and they, you know, they're all in this insane money game where they just they can't make enough, yeah. and you know that that's going to be the determining factor. But I I still like the Pac-12 where it is, even though it's it's lost its two big, you know, mothership schools. I I just don't I, I just don't see how adding SMU it does that much for them overall, but. You know, I and I think the other thing too is it wouldn't surprise me if the next three or four years, Pac-12 schools get picked off, and if that happens, then it becomes the Mountain West. Yeah, Mac Ingles with us, SMU professor, uh, Fort Worth Star Telegram. What happens to SMU? Pac, let's say the Pac-12 says, you know what, we're going to stay at ten. We like our identity. Deal's good enough. We're going to sign uh, Oregon, Washington. Know they can get to the playoff easier through the Pac-10. They don't have to compete against sure. Michigan and Ohio State. Uh, you know what happens to SMU in that scenario? Stay put, American Athletic Conference. And I think that's you know when I reached out to them, you know I reached out to SMU representative on a, for an on the record comment. They, they're not going to talk about it because, and I would tell them the same thing if I was on there. If I you know if I was being asked, I'm like yeah, don't don't touch this because you still have to be a good member of the American Athletic Conference, and you know. I think we sometimes forget, justifiably, that college athletics is gigantic. And if you look at the American Athletic Conference, it's pretty good. I mean, Cincinnati, I know Cincinnati's leaving, but Cincinnati got to the playoff out of the American Athletic Conference. Houston has been good, and they've spent a ton of money to be competitive. Being in, There's no shame in being in the AAC. There's not. I, I think the problem is, is that we're just so – power five centric and really and i wrote it today it's feeling like the power two and then the first three uh, and and that's you know that's the way it is but i think they'll they'll stay where they are and that delineation in college football which is you know who has the most money and who doesn't will continue to run it and they'll be they'll keep trying because i know it's a priority for the, the president of that school who's been there for a long time to try to get into a power a power league, and I think they'll just keep knocking on the door and hoping it changes, and, and maybe they can get lucky and get one of those invites. I love talking with people who are on those campuses and in the know. Uh, SMU professor and Fort Worth Star-Telegram columnist Mac Engel, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure, John. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot. You bet. There it is. Sobering stuff, but look, he's spitting, he's spitting some truth there. I think there's a real possibility that the Pac-12 could stay at 10 and become the Pac-10 again. I think there's a possibility they could go to 11 and add San Diego State. Uh, I tweeted today that, uh, you know, Boise State sources telling me that the Pac-12 offices have kept Boise State at arm's length. I haven't tweeted this yet, but I'm told that Fresno State is feeling the same way. They are not uh, feeling that they are uh, respected by the Pac-12 offices, and I, and I think that pertains to their academic standards more than anything. It's not a slap on the geography. There's a lot of TV households in Central California. I think there's a real possibility that the Pac-12 gets pretty picky when it comes to this stuff. Uh, SMU being willing to pay or buy its way into the conference is interesting. But uh, we'll talk about that in the coming days. On tomorrow's show, we're going back to Sand Dog. 
We've got, uh, you know, somebody heard Lee Hacksaw Hamilton's appearance on this show. And another radio station in San Diego had a, had a host reach out and say, hey, put me on. I have a different take on San Diego State. As Hacksaw was down on San Diego State being part of the Pac-12. Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Kevin Durant, uh, on the record, says he likes the Phoenix Suns' title chances. Spoke to reporters today uh, during a news conference, first time as a member of the Suns. Said we've got a champion in uh, James Jones as the GM. Monty's a champion uh, as a coach. Got some guys that have been there. And that's half the battle, just knowing what it takes. Uh, Durant also reminisced about his time in Brooklyn. He uh, a limited number of games that he played uh, alongside James Harden and Kyrie Irving. He said, quote, we just didn't get on the court enough, end quote. Um, 16 games uh, <laughs> that they were on the court together, that trio. Um, Durant uh, also got emotional when discussing his time in Brooklyn. Said a lot of ups and downs. Gets emotional talking about it because it was a special Four years coming in his career. Remember, he had the Achilles injury. They waited for him. feel kind of bad for the Brooklyn fans, but the former MVP is now with the Phoenix Suns, and uh, uh, Kevin Durant's arrival has brought a huge wave of excitement to that market. Anna's popped into the studio. Uh, Steven, uh, I want to kick this around with uh, everybody, really. But, um, you know, Phoenix in that market, they had a Super Bowl. Same time they landed Kevin Durant. Can we get a little bit of excitement? What's the what's the best thing that's happened in the Oregon sports market in the last year? Best thing that's happened. Mm. Nominees. Hmm. Most exciting thing <laughs> that has happened. <laughs> Phoenix got a Super Bowl, and they got uh, they got Kevin Durant. Well, the uh, the what was it? The Track World Championships was down at uh, Eugene. That was supposedly a big deal. Okay, we had the world. Ch- <laughs> we had a track meet. We had a track meet in Eugene. Uh, that's I Peter. Just remember former former Sean really loved it. Was telling me how big of a deal it was. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know that. that. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, what do you got? Uh, Most n- exciting thing that's happened. Nothing. I have nothing, John. I have no idea. That's uh, th- it hasn't really been. Oregon State. Oregon State won ten football games. Yeah. Like, like DJU choosing Oregon State. Yeah. Out of everybody, okay. is that it though? He hasn't played yet. Okay, but we got we need some nominees. We need to get yeah. on the board here. Put something. This is like when when Steve Harvey's going top ten answers on the board. We're just looking for number seven. Didn't the Thorns win like a national championship? Thorns won a played in a title match. Didn't win it. They played in it. Oh, they played in it. Played in it. Or did they win it? I can't. I'm trying, trying to think. They, they won. won. It. Okay. Yeah. All right. I was yeah. Thinking. Remember, like everybody went to the That's airport. Right. That was very exciting. Okay. That was good. It was but, a national championship. But there was a darkness around the franchise because of the mess and Merritt which, Paulson which and all of that. Which made their yeah. win that much more remarkable. Yeah. That's why I didn't, you know, didn't immediately pop to mind as this great moment in state history because it was like. The, it was a team that had overcome the front office in man in ownership. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Let that's on the board. Ding. That's number seven. <laughs> okay. Uh, Shaden Sharp's dunking like a madman. Ding. Number nine. 
Jonathan Smith and Oregon State, they win 10 games. Dan Lanning comes to Oregon, they win 10 games. I thought the college football season had a little uptick to it. What else? We need a Super Bowl? What do we need? We got a Final Four, the women's Final Four. Got announced as being a Portland thing. That's a victory. The PK, Phoenix is P- just greedy. Yeah, PKI. That was a big deal. Okay. We had the <laughs> Phil Knight Invitational and the Phil Knight Classic. I'm de- I'm not saying it's like, you know, I just think, I feel like we we deserve a little bit of that, a little bit of excitement. Yeah, Kevin Durant to the Blazers would have done it. Why can't we get something? Yeah. Like, biggest move. Like, let's just go franchise by franchise. I think it's the best way to do it. Anna, you brought up the Thorns. Are you nominating the Thorns championship? Absolutely. As, okay. The Thorns won a championship. So far, that's on top of the board. Uh, let's look at Oregon State. Oregon State won 10 football games and got DJ Uyunglele to come to through the ta- transfer portal to Oregon State. That's pretty nice for Oregon State. Anything better happen in, in Oregon State's sphere? Beat Oregon. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's part of it. They yeah. won ten games. They beat Oregon. That's okay. how you get to ten. Okay, okay that's how about, yeah. how about the Ducks? Uh, they played the national champion in the first week when everyone was watching. <laughs> <laughs> they came back after that. <laughs> they uh, they left the stadium walking. Yeah. After a forty-nine to three loss, I know. I saw them leaving. Um, <laughs> Probably Dan Lanning smoking the cigar on recruiting day. Okay, they had a great recruiting class. Do you think he really smoked it? Yeah, I think he did. Okay. The guy's getting all tatted up, too, you know? Yeah. He's getting tats, and he's smoking cigars. That was some tattoo. Yeah. he's. I think he had another one, too. What do you mean? Since I think, then? No, I think he's got a couple of tats. We're going to have to get him on the show to talk about his tats. He has, a, he has a giant one that represents his entire, like, coaching career. Yeah. And life. It's it's wild. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyone that hasn't seen it, Google Dan Lanning's tattoo. Okay. We're going to get him <laughs> on the a, show. It's a sight to behold. The real winners are the tattoo artists in Eugene <laughs> yes. who have been busy yes. with new canvas. Uh, so Oregon wins 10 games. Oregon hosts the world championships in track and field. Uh, Hillsborough Hops got elevated to, uh, l- you know, long Real A ball, they're no longer a short season, low A, they're high A. They hired the first woman manager in history in their franchise and only the second nationally. Uh, the Yankees beat them to the punch last year. So uh, they have a woman in the dugout who's managing the team, which is kind of a cool deal. Um, the Timbers, I don't think there's much to talk about on on that front. Like People just kind of gloss over it. Ownership management issues there. Major League Baseball did not put a team in Portland. <laughs> Portland Trailblazers. All right, Peter, biggest, most exciting thing that has happened to the Blazers in all seriousness, no sarcasm, what like, it's what Peter. are we talking about? Oh, it's been a rough year for the Trailblazers. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, Lillard got healthy. Damian Lillard got healthy, exactly. I, I, I think that uh, you and I both hit on it. He's having a career year. It's been fun to watch. It's been relieving to see. Shaden Sharps, Duncan. Yeah, it's in the conversation. Uh, anybody else? Didn't Westland High School beat? Yeah, like Bronny James and, and all the Cannon. best teams in the country. Yeah. Okay. Westland High School won the Les Schwab Invitational Tournament. Wow. <laughs> what I'm saying is, can we get a bone here? Like <laughs> these are the bones. Glendale, Arizona, got a Super Bowl. Yeah. Okay. Now they have now Phoenix has Kevin Durant. 
a suburb of Phoenix got a Super Bowl, a suburb of Portland got a Les Schwab Invitational title. <laughs> they got Kevin Durant, you know, Blazers' biggest acquisition of last year, got traded for five second-round draft picks. We need what is going to be our thing in the next year. What is that move that needs to be made? I want calls on this front. If we've got it coming, what franchise is going to deliver? Is it going to be Oregon State? Is it going to be Oregon? Is it going to be the Timbers, the Thorns, something else? Are we going to get an event? Are we getting an all-star game? Hell, Salt Lake City is going to host the all-star game. John, how quickly you've forgotten the Live Golf Tournament we had last summer. Live Golf. Oh, yeah. Got some Saudi money infused in our economy. Wait, that actually happened, right? It happened. It did happen? Yep. Went off without a hitch. 503-417-7575. Tell us, you know, it's almost like you're buying a stock. Where is the moment of the next year going to come from? Which fan base, which entity? Make a prediction. There are no wrong answers here. Top seven answers are on the board, though. 503-417-7575. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I love this topic because I'm asking you to anticipate where the good news is coming from in the next year as it pertains to our sphere of sports. The Phoenix Suns delivered, for example... Uh, a big uh, splash in getting Kevin Durant and trading for him. And the Dallas Mavericks in their fan base, big splash, right? Kyrie Irving to the Dallas Mavericks gives them a chance. Of course, the Kansas City Chiefs won a Super Bowl. And Glendale, Arizona hosted a Super Bowl. Uh, the Major League Baseball season will will uh, you know shortly begin as pitchers and catchers report for spring training and then teams will start playing and a couple of Major League Baseball cities will play in a World Series. So I'm asking you to kind of look at the sports landscape in our region and tell me where the big splash is going to come from. Is it going to be Oregon State? Are they going to win the Pac-12 championship and make the college football playoff? Is it going to be Oregon? Does Dan Lanning and that recruiting class come to fruition and suddenly there's a splash there? Will it be something else? You tell me at 503-417-7575. Put on your psychic hat and make an educated prediction. Let's go to the phone lines. Cameron is in Gresham. Cameron, what do you got? Well, this doesn't really qualify as uh, the Super Bowl or even an all-star game, but uh, Portland did get the uh, women's Final Four nod, but I don't think that's for seven or eight years. Something. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I, I actually mentioned that in the last segment because I think, I think it's good. It's the 2030 Women's Final Four that Portland gets. I was in Salt Lake City, what was it, 10, 12 days ago, two weeks ago? I can't even remember. They were setting up for the All-Star game already. There was some buzz there. The residents of Salt Lake City, though, were had mixed feelings about it. They were going... We don't know if the NBA players are going to have as good a time here as they would in Vegas or L.A. And they were talking about the uh, the alcohol limitations. And they were also, there were some people who were a little bit put off by the fact that there would be big crowds and the venues and the city's restaurants were all going to be taken over for 
an NBA All-Star weekend. But I think people in Portland would welcome that. Your prediction on where the action will be in the next year when it comes to sports. I'm going to make a prediction. I want Stephen and Peter, and I want yours as well, at 503-417-7575. All right, here's my prediction. I think that the Pac-12 media deal would get done. I think San Diego State will get added. So I think college football is again going to be a, a sweet spot for the Pac-12 this next season. I think uh, you're talking about five ranked teams and Oregon and Oregon State among them both. And so I think that the uh, the big noise around college football this next season is going to be Bo Nix as a finalist in the Heisman Trophy race. I think he gets to the downtown athletic club. I think Oregon's going to win 10-plus games. I think Nick's will be in that conversation. I think he's well-positioned right now before the start of the season, and I think Oregon's going to be you know, a top-15 team in the uh, preseason rankings, and I think a lot of eyeballs on Bo Nix. My prediction is Bo Nix at the downtown athletic club and that will be a big deal here in our region, of course. I like it. Uh, I'll, I'll go off that one a little bit. Uh, mine was going to be that I can't decide which team I want to put in, so I'm going to put both. Um, one of either Oregon or Oregon State will be in the Pac-12 title game. Um, I think that it's going to be tough because of all the teams coming back. You know, Utah has been there, done that. USC's Caleb Williams back. I think one of these Oregon Oregon State teams, they have the goods, and you talk about Bo Nix. You know, being a Heisman finalist, I think if that happens, Oregon could be in the Pac-12 title game. I, I think one of these teams from the state of Oregon uh, is playing in Vegas next year. I like that. I like. I would love to see. See what what I am anticipating along those lines is I think we're going to see that both of those teams matter down the stretch, and so I think there's a chance we could be talking at least for a couple weeks next season. I don't think it's going to happen, but I think we could be talking about the possibility of the Civil War football game being played in Vegas because I think Oregon and Oregon State are both going to be in the top four teams in the conference next season. And I think like at about week eight, it will be a possibility. There would be a mathematical possibility that Oregon and Oregon State could play their annual rivalry game at Autzen Stadium on uh, Thanksgiving weekend and then play again a week later in Vegas for the Pac-12 title. So I buy what you're selling because you couldn't decide which team. Uh, you're picking them both. Let's go to Mike in Portland. That opens the line at 503-417-7575. Mike, where's the big splash going to come from next in the next year? Colorado Buffalo, and I'm going to tell you why. You're mm -hmm. talking about uh, Bo Nix. You must not be keeping up on current events because Colorado got the number one um, – uh, cornerbacks uh, in the nation, Carmani McLean, he took him from uh, uh, crystal ball, and he got Travis Hunter. Bo Nix ain't going to be able to throw uh, out to these guys because they're going to intercept him. So he gonna, they're going to shut him down. Also, <clears throat> excuse me, also Colorado got the number one coaching staff uh, in the Pac-12. Why, uh, while um, Dan Lennon went and got a high school coach, um, Colorado got guys that have coached in the NFL. He got experienced coaches there, man. Matter of fact, Colorado's putting together an NFL-style 
football team. I don't know if you're keeping up with all this stuff. Plus, Colorado got the number one um, transfer uh, com uh, commitments in the nation. I had of everybody. So, man, the Ducks ain't going to do nothing, man. You got to get up on, on current events, man. You, you <laughs> okay, really but look do. at this. Okay, Mike, Mike, Colorado's going to open at TCU. Win or That's loss? Good. Win or hey, loss? John, let, let me tell you something. Deion Sanders and them, they're walking. Uh, they like that, man. When you, when you talk to Bo Nix, he, he was running scared. He said, man, I'm glad we got this little old cream puff schedule playing <laughs> Portland State, Portland State. Man, yeah. come on now, John. You don't believe that, man. All right. They, they cold, play. So I'm not Colorado, Colorado plays at Oregon September 23rd. Are you going to be there? Hey, John, that's another thing. Colorado, all their games are sold out. Matter of fact, their practice game is sold out. They sold out, and I think, in about 19 minutes. Man, yeah. you're not keeping up on stuff. Hey, John. <laughs> John Keep going. I'm yes. telling you, man, you're not hip to And don't you know during the NFL Super Bowl, Deion Sanders was recruiting, man. Nah, she was recruiting at the Super Bowl. Man, you ain't got a chance, man. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. We'll see. You know what he should do? The over-under on win for Colorado next season is floating somewhere around four and a half or five and a half, depending on where you see it. He should be betting the over. I don't I don't know if there's a better than I don't think next season is gonna be better than four and eight for Colorado. I think they're gonna start with a loss to TCU. I think they have a chance to win maybe one non-conference game between TCU, Nebraska, and Colorado State. But there's a chance to be 0-3. I think they'll lose at Oregon. I think USC is going to beat them. I think they have a shot against Arizona State. I think they could beat Stanford. I don't think they'll beat UCLA. I don't think they'll beat Oregon State. I don't think they'll beat Arizona. I don't think they can win at Washington State. I don't think they can win at Utah. I got, I got them down for four, maybe five wins. Anything above that is a huge success for Deion Sanders in year one. But uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Brandon's in Portland. Brandon, go ahead. Hey, buddy. How you doing, John? Doing well. Doing well. Hey, oh, question. Back to the NBA All-Star game. Yes. So they, I mean, Portland, I, I, I'm a Laker and Laker for life, but I got season tickets to the Blazers because Lillard's one of the greatest I've ever seen. And I watched Clyde and stuff. When they say they won't bring the All-Star game here because of the lack of hotel rooms, we got to have 5,000 hotel rooms here. How many people with media and fans do we need to have the, the game here? The place, like you were saying about Utah, dude, people would embrace the All-Star game here for sure, and that's not cheap. Yeah, yeah. When you go back and you look at the bid history for the All-Star game in Portland, I mean, it's discouraging. And I think the Blazers and Sport Oregon have both been discouraged at different points. Um, it was – you know, 2021 or so that the Portland bid for the NBA All-Star Game for Moda Center fell short. And pure and simple, it was about Portland not having uh, the, the hotel rooms at that point. Now the Convention Center Hotel Project's gone through. I do think the city's got it. But the problem is you don't have an owner who's lobbying the NBA, part of that bid process. There's no urgency. The arena itself, Moda Center... Is uh, it needs some upgrades? I'm told it needs about 200 million dollars in upgrades. I do think Portland will get an All-Star game. I think it will happen. 
after the franchise is sold. And I think if Phil Knight got that franchise, I think uh, it would be a matter of, you know, how many years until they have an open date for an All-Star game. I think that would happen. But uh, I think the caller's right. It, it just bothers me when we see the All-Star game go back to cities like Salt Lake City, Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis. Uh, it goes back to those kinds of places. So uh, I'm a little, little concerned that no ownership means no All-Star game. And they did not bid in the last cycle for the NBA All-Star game. They took a break. So I think that has to do with the fact that there's no owner there. David is in Vancouver, and he's got a prediction for us. David, go ahead. Actually, Astoria, John, and I, I, I want to jump in on the bandwagon of you starting to keep up with this whole sports thing. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening. Will I need you to promise keep up. us that from now on you'll just you'll keep up a little I bit? Need to, I need to stay on top of this stuff. Uh, I'll, get, I'll get on it. I love that that there are people getting uh, cranked up about Colorado. I, I love what what the new coach is bringing. I love that he's recruiting like heck. Uh, question is, will he will he be able to put together a staff and a program that tr- translates all that into wins? And will he stick? I, you know, Deion Sanders. Will he stick around long enough to to do that? Uh, I have to say I doubt it, but I think the big splash is going to be uh, as much as as a Ducks fan, I hate to say it, I think it's going to be USC. I, I think maybe they are going to put it together. They're going to kick off the shackles of, of uh, their long-time under, over-recruiting, underperforming history and do something. Yeah, I uh, look. I I think USC on the, going out the door. There'd be a lot of Pac-12 fans not happy with seeing USC win big. Uh, by the way, I just looked up the win total for Colorado. Currently, guys, it's at five and a half. I, I like the under there. I in order for them to get to six wins, they're going to have to beat somebody that I clearly don't think they can beat. And and that would be winning at Oregon, beating USC, beating UCLA, beating Utah. They have to win one of those games, beating Oregon State in order to get to six wins. And and that assumes that they're going to win a non-conference game. I don't see it. I think he's going to be better. But let's remember, that was a 1-11 team. You know, he inherited nothing. He has no momentum. I think Deion Sanders will win at Colorado. I don't think he's going to make a bowl game, though, next season. Not with that schedule. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I love that uh, last segment, last segment or two. As we look at the landscape of sports in the state of Oregon. Well, how sad would that be if uh, the biggest thing in, happens in Oregon is Colorado being good? <laughs> that would be a it's bad year be, for Oregon. It's going to be better than that. I, I like under five wins, five and a half wins for, for Colorado this season. And, I, it, look, I think going four and eight would be a nice year. Get some get your feet underneath you. It's kind of like what Jonathan Smith did at Oregon State. It's you know, it's know, This is not going to be Lincoln-Riley to USC-like. And I think that was even... You know, I think that USC was fortunate to to get where they were and be in the position they were entering the Pac-12 title game because they could have easily lost to Oregon State in Corvallis. 
they could have easily lost other games uh, early in the year as well. I, I tend to agree with you because we had the same thought the entire year that USC was going to fall at some point. It just never yep. happened. Like I, I just don't see all these transfers coming in and being just great chemistry from day one, winning games at the get-go. So I'm with you on this one. They'll be better, though, but I, yeah. I, think, I think their schedule is brutal. Like, the, you know, when I looked at Colorado's – when he initially got hired, I said bowl eligibility is out there for them. I thought, you know, it's a possibility. They could be bowl eligible, right? Like, this is um, – you know, it's out there. Then the season schedule came out, and I looked at the schedule, and I went, um, nope, <laughs> not happening. I mean, even with that schedule, John, like, we'll be able to tell after three games, if they're 2-1, and one, like, okay, this team is for real, right? Like, yeah. we'll be able to tell real quick if this team is going to be a legitimate Pac-12 contender or not after just a couple games. And it doesn't have to – I don't. I'm not saying – it's not a knock on Deion Sanders. It's not a knock on his coaching. I think the guy's – he's won and had success – with everything that he's ever touched. And I think he will continue to win and have success, um, you know, as he plays in this thing. But his spring game is April 22nd. I'm really toying with being there in Boulder, Folsom Field, for that game because I want to see them. And maybe doing the show that Friday from Boulder with Coach Prime or being part of the show. So I, I'm, I've got that circled on my calendar. I've reached out to Colorado. But let's just – they're at TCU to start the season in Fort Worth against a team that made and got run out of the playoffs, but made the playoffs. That's a good TCU team on the road in your first game. You know, we'll know, right, right away. Then, they, then they're at Nebraska, comes to Boulder in week two on September 9th. Then Colorado State comes to Boulder. If he's getting to six wins, he's got to have at least one in, in that non-conference grouping, okay? So let's just assume they're one and two to start the year, and we'll use that as let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they beat Nebraska. Maybe they beat Colorado State. Uh, they're one and two. Then they go to Oregon. I just don't see them winning that game. Then they play USC at home. I don't see them winning that game. Then it's at Arizona State. Let's be generous. Let's say they win that game, and I don't know if it's a gimme on the road against another team that's reloading, I'll give Colorado that game. So we're sitting at two wins after the further fur, the two, and I got them at two and three to start. Okay? And that's so, generous. Yeah, excuse me, two and four to start because that's game six, Arizona State. So two and four. Then they play Stanford at home. They're going to win that game. That's three. Then they're at UCLA. It's a loss. Then they got Oregon State. That's a loss. Then they play Arizona. Um, let's be super generous. Even though Arizona, I think, is really trending in the right direction, it's senior day. It's the last home game. Let's just say he wins that one. That's four. He's now sitting at four wins with the two games to finish the year, both on the road at Washington State at Utah. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to say they win at Washington State, even though I, I, don't, I wouldn't pick them right now in that game. So that's five. Then they go to Utah. They're not winning at, at Rice-Eccles Stadium. Best case scenario, they're five and seven, and I'm being generous. They're probably four and eight, maybe three and nine. For I mean, being real for the conference, I mean, it would be huge if they could pull off a win either over TCU or Nebraska, right? Yeah. And then they then they can hopefully beat Colorado State. They're two and one heading to Autzen because at that point you still aren't sure if this team is really good or just you know not you know solid four or five win team.
Yeah, I think four and five. I, I, and I'll do official predictions as the season gets closer, but I think he he's going to win four or five and be really competitive in a couple games that maybe we don't see coming. It's kind of like, you know, I, I expect four or five, and then I expect bowl eligibility in a second season. And then it's his third season where I really think, like, all right, his recruits, the transfer portal, if Deion Sanders is going to cook, he's going to cook in that third year. And I think that's that's the season where you go, could they contend? Could they be 8, 9, 10 win team? That's when Colorado gets really exciting and interesting. But yeah, we're talking about Colorado football. Like it's a win already. Coach Prime has won. All right, the 5 at 5 is coming up. Uh, also in the 5 o'clock hour, the happy hour, we'll play some punch and audio. We've got great sound on this great Thursday. I appreciate you being here for it. You got the bald face truth statewide. Stay tuned for the 5 at 5. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Anna's under the weather, so she's not going to do the five at five. I'm on my own. I'm solo. She tried to go. She's she started. I told you the kids were sick. It's going around. She attempted and then said, I can't do it. I think the studio, I think it's just too intense in here. In the studio. But I told her, I said, don't, you know. She wasn't she wasn't supposed to be here anyway. Then she realized she wasn't getting paid, and then she's like, yeah. <laughs> earlier, earlier this week, a caller alertly called her attention to the fact that she wasn't getting paid. Now she's holding out. She's going, why are you getting paid? <laughs> I will do the five at five solo. Hopefully she'll be back and ready uh, to do the five at five on tomorrow's show. But we will see. I got good stuff. Uh, among it, uh, Adam Silver taking us behind the curtain in the NBA. What do I mean by that? Stick around. Here we go. The five at five. The five at five. Well, I'll start with Adam Silver. NBA officiating becomes a topic of conversation all the time. But in the wake of a high-profile missed call that went against Lakers superstar LeBron James last month, Adam Silver has informed the media that officials are absolutely held accountable and disciplined for making errors. Silver told uh, ESPN Sage Still today on SportsCenter that the league does not publicize discipline for officials. They don't think it would be appropriate, but they do discipline the officials. Now look, I did a series a few years ago on NBA officiating. They're logging every call. They're also logging with the broadcasters say about the call so the league is super tuned in to officiating and how it's perceived around the around the nba i do think they should make those disciplinary actions public they put a box score out for the game why not once a month publish the grades for all the nba officials hold them accountable the nba's union posted a public apology after the Lakers-Celtics game on January 28th for getting, the call, for getting the call wrong. 
But one of the criticisms of that moment really wasn't about the call itself. It was about the fact that there was no mechanism available to the referees to adjust the call. League needs to look at that. That's number one. Adam Silver admitting that the league does discipline refs. Tell us more, though. We need to know more. World Series champion, TV analyst Tim McCarver, is dead at the age of 81. That's number two in our five at five. All-star catcher, Hall of Fame broadcaster, 60 years total in baseball. He won two World Series titles with the St. Louis Cardinals, was one of the most recognized, incisive, talkative television commentators in the country. Baseball Hall of Fame said that McCarver died this morning in Memphis, Tennessee with his family. Among the very few players to appear in Major League games in four different decades. Joe Buck, often on the call with Tim McCarver, says he owes him so much. Here's Joe Buck. Did he ever intimidate you at all? Did he try to intimidate you and say, listen, I'm, I'm the alpha here? No, and it's a good question because I, I think I, I that's where I owe him so much because had he been that way, I, I might have retreated. But he wasn't that way. I know, you know, he and my dad did two years of national broadcast and World Series on CBS. And it, it was not a, a great two years for either one of them, uh, just with regard to the way they interacted and got along. But when, when I was matched up with Tim, when Fox got the rights in 96, there was nobody happier about that than my dad. And, and he knew, you know, like I said earlier, that, that I was protected because whatever was going to happen on that field, Tim could probably talk his way or work his way through. Tim McCarver was a 271 hitter as a catcher and a first baseman with the Cardinals. Dead at the age of 81. Good life for uh, Tim McCarver. Number three in our five at five. Let's turn to the police blotter. New Orleans Saints running back Alvin Kamara. Cincinnati Bengals cornerback Chris Lemons and two others have been indicted by a grand jury for allegedly assaulting a man at a Las Vegas nightclub in February. All four were indicted on charges of conspiracy to commit battery. Uh, Camara's attorneys said that he, can, he intends to contest the charges. There's been a civil lawsuit from Darnell Green Jr., the man who alleges he was attacked. He alleges that Kamara and the three other men beat him and stomped on him when he was on the floor outside the nightclub the night before the Pro Bowl. Green is asking for damages of no less than $10 million. Trouble in the NFL, no doubt. That's number three. Number four in the five at five. The U.S. women's national team is making a call for gender equality. United States and Canadian women's players stood in solidarity today for gender equality ahead of their She Believes Cup match in Orlando. Players from both teams wore purple tape on their wrists. The display for equality comes in response to Canadian players' ongoing fight with their federation. They're trying to get equal treatment with the men. This is a big deal in the WNBA and with the WNWSL in soccer and in basketball. Fighting for charter flights and larger salaries.
That's number four in the five at five. The fifth thing, I want to go to the NFL, and I want to go to a upbeat, positive, uplifting story. Too much of the news is negative. Jonathan Gannon was hired as the Arizona Cardinals' new coach, and he was so excited to get going with Kyler Murray. There's a video circulating of Gannon walking around the Arizona Cardinals' facility trying to find Murray. Gannon had his introductory news conference today, and he said one of his first moves is going to be to start looking at offensive coaches that will help Murray win. He says that process starts in the next 48 hours. 40-minute news conference, laid out his approach for the Cardinals, said, quote, we're going to win games, end quote. In order to do that, he's going to need Murray to be healthy and on the field. He's recovering from an ACL surgery. Murray was one of 10 players who showed up for the news conference. Interesting that he was there. Interesting that there are 10 players there. That's not normal. That's the five at five. Five big stories going on. Uh, love the Joe Buck comment uh, about uh, Tim McCarver. Adam Silver uh, saying that officials are graded. Like, we knew they were graded. We know that the officials who get the best grades in the NBA get to go in, you know, they, they get to officiate the All-Star game. They get to officiate the NBA Finals. Uh, I, you know, I had not heard about private reprimands. Do you guys believe that NBA officials, the graded reports that the officials get on every game, or maybe their end-of-the-season grades, do you think they should be public? Yes, I do. I think uh, is, this kind of goes back to the first hour. We're talking with Peter Bear, like with gambling and stuff. I do think that it's very um, important to be very um, – I can't think of the word I'm thinking about uh, – translucent. Is that a word? Trans yeah, translucent, I guess. Transparent. Uh, transparent. transparent. Yeah, yeah, that's the word of the Transparent uh, with everybody uh, just of how these referees are graded and how it works out because – there's always going to be that talk of like, oh, well, the, you know, the late or the the league wants the Lakers to be in, but if they hand out these reports and they show exactly how they're graded, I do think that might put some people's mind at ease that it isn't necessarily going to be rigged, and I, I think it's just a good idea. I think it holds the refs accountable. Um, I think it can also show the players like, look, these refs are actually doing a good job. You need to stop complaining as much as you do. Like this, I think it can help all around, uh, just in general. Yeah, and look, Rod Thorne was, when I did the series on the NBA officiating, he was the VP that was in charge of officiating, and he kind of talked me through their process, what happens in that Secaucus, New Jersey command center where they're logging all the plays and everything, and like, like they're looking at everything. They're just not making it all public. And I actually argued, you know, I said to him, like, what percentage of the calls are right? And... You know, my perception was maybe they get 85% of the calls right. Like, basketball, I think, is really hard to officiate. I think you can call a lot of fouls here and there. You know, we're all watching on TV with the benefit of instant replay and slow motion and HD cameras, and it still looks like it's really difficult to officiate games, right, even with all of that added stuff. And he said that the percentage was much higher, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't tell me the percentage. He would say, no, it's much higher than you think. It, like, I, think we, I think it would benefit the public to see that. Like, if some officials only getting 65% of the calls right, and at the end of the year they publish that, that guy, you know, it puts some accountability on that person. And, you know, the players are judged. We know, the, we know that 
their shooting percentages. We know how many rebounds they averaged. We know, you know, their plus minus at the end of the game. We we know what they're worth as a player on the court. What's wrong with at the end of the season going, hey, here are the complete grades for the whole year, all of our officials. I think it's a great idea. Um, the only problem that I have is with it, John, is the players are, you know, they are um, given contra- like big time contracts and rewarded handsomely for what they do. Um, the referees are not in that situation, and they will receive only criticism. Like I think, even if a ref were to get ninety five percent of calls right, like no one's going to give him props for it. They're just like, oh, cool, he's doing his job well. But when, like you said, if there's a 60% guy, that's when everyone's going to be critical of him. Yeah. And I think that might be a problem just pay-wise. Like, do they deserve all the criticism? No, because I think a lot of it is, yeah. like you said, it's a hard job. But I, I think in general, like, it's a great idea that can help out everybody. The highest paid official in the NBA uh, last season was Tony Brothers. Ugh, one of the worst. He makes $550,000 a year. He is the the most experienced. He's handled 1,500 regular season game, 140 playoff games. I, are you curious what percentage of calls he got right? Like, you know, I, I would like to know. Like, hey, he got 97% of calls on uh, this kind of play right. He, he was only good for 87% on this kind of call. Like, I would be curious to see what they are tracking because I know they are tracking. Peter, what do you think Tony Brothers gets percentage-wise of his calls right? Based on, based seven, on your reaction. Seven percent, man. <laughs> and, and the thing is, is a lot of this data, it's already out there. It's done independently. You can go to Basketball Reference and several other of the advanced tracking sites, and it's not going to give you that percentage of calls, but you can see how they tend to call certain violations, home versus away teams, things like that. And so you can quantify who's doing a good job and who's doing a poor job. Tony Brothers doing a poor job, one of the three worst NBA officials, in my opinion. But I want to see, John, I'm completely with you. I want to see how the league defines correct calls and does that sort of jive with what the betting public the advanced analytics public calls good officiating is it the same all right so here's what rod thorne told me i just pulled up the series that i did uh in this was uh this was eight years ago okay so this is a little dated but uh rod thorne told me i you know i was pressing him on what percentage of calls are they getting right he said that it was in the high 80s up in the 80s percentage of correct calls and and this is like they're nitpicking if they see a travel on film and they don't call it they ding them if you know there's a reach and they don't call it they ding them and thorn's contention was more often than not a missed call was not a whistle it was failure to whistle that was the big culprit when it came to hey they missed a call hey they didn't call a foul when they should have called a foul and and look you guys have both played basketball and you've watched a lot of basketball i don't necessarily want them calling everything do you no like if they call it tight there's too many free throws in the game i want to see them play yeah if you call it by the rule book i imagine if it actually happened that way for a a year the players would adjust but i'll never forget when the officials were they were locked out or they were striking during preseason they brought in college officials and i'm like here we go finally get a call it the way it's supposed to be it was literally unwatchable for a couple weeks no you're totally right and that's the thing is i i totally believe uh what thorne was saying there what you just said john like 
it's mostly that they don't call a foul because they're trying to let the guys play. And it goes back to the whole Super Bowl argument, like, well, they're trying to let the guys play, and they're getting mad, but now we're getting mad because these referees are letting the players play and figuring it out on the court. So it's like, we're going to get mad no matter what happens with the referees, and I do think the referees, for the most part, in all sports, get it pretty get it right pretty much all the time. Most all right, time. so I, I did this series during the playoffs in, in uh, 2014, and I believe the Blazers were playing the Rockets in that series. Or maybe it was the Rockets that year or something. And something happened in game one with uh, one of the Rockets players. And I got to talking with an official about it. And it kind of sparked an idea for me to look at officiating. Because everybody was bellyaching about how the game was called. And I thought it was really interesting how tuned in the NBA got to some Yahoo in Portland that was suddenly writing about officiating. Like, they shouldn't have even noticed. The league's too big. They shouldn't have even noticed that I was writing about officiating. They got right away Rod Thorne on the phone with me. He invited me to New Jersey. He said, come see the command center. Um, you know, it's not the first time I've been invited to see a command center. But it was... It turned into a long conversation, a lot of data going back and forth, and the league really worried about what I was going to write about officiating. And I did like a five- or six-part series on officiating. I talked to Joey Crawford. I talked to Tim Donahue. I talked to Mark Cuban. I talked to Rod Thorne, obviously. I, you know, people in the league office. They were super worried about it. And, and you guys may remember it was – during that period, we were talking about it on this show, and all of a sudden, Mark Cuban called in. And people were like, did you book Cuban to be on the show? No. He was listening to the stream because he was interested to see what we were saying about the officiating. Now, he, this is what he said about the officiating, and I think he spoke for a lot of owners in the league. This is Mark Cuban from June of 2014 when he called in. Yeah, I mean, look, my, my attitude is, the fact that we're having this conversation about the integrity of, of the game is horrible for our brand. And I think there are people that literally believe, and it's not true, but literally believe that games are fixed or the outcomes are influenced by the league. And I think that impacts the people who buy tickets, the number of uh, people who spend money on merchandise, the number of people who watch our games. And so it's something that you know I do feel is an investment and that we'll try to improve and that Adam Silver has been very, very open to. Yeah, and it it was interesting to kind of get that context because then I asked him about David Stern because people may remember, like Mark Cuban was one of the most outspoken uh, critics of, you know, the officiating uh, in the David Stern era. He got fined regularly. He doesn't do it so much now, but he used to get fined all the time. Um, here's what he said about the difference between Adam Silver and David Stern. Remember, it was very early at Adam's tenure i think and i don't want to speak for david but my attitude with david on this and my battle with david is when when david stern was commissioner was that he he didn't care who won he knew one team had to win and one team had to lose and, the, and officiating may or may not impact who won but to him because he didn't care who won you know it didn't the officiating was well down on the list i think adam recognizes that you know, it's not that Adam cares which team wins, but what he does recognize is that it impacts our brand, impacts TV viewership, impacts merchandise sales, and so as a result, it's something we should deal with. It is something they should deal with, and I feel like they should put that data out 
in some form or fashion. Here are the grades. It doesn't have to be every game. It shouldn't be like part of the box score. Hey, Tony Brothers only got 65% of the calls right tonight. Uh, you know, but I think it should be out there in some form or fashion. It holds everybody accountable. Yeah, maybe like an all-star break or a midseason report and then yeah. an end-of-the-season report, right? Like, I think yeah. – because then we can go into the playoffs and thinking like, oh, these refs, you know, they actually did really good this season. Like, we're, these are the best of the best refs, and this is why they put them out there. Yeah, these are the best refs. They deserve to be here. I just wonder if they if there's they're concerned that some fans would you know pick on officials during games. Oh, you're Mr. Thirty Eight Percent. Like I, it, there's a possibility that could be part of it. But you know, give bonuses to the best officials. Hey, you get you get eighty five percent of your calls right. You get a bonus. I think fans would support that. I think we all want to see the games officiated correctly. But I think it kind of speaks to the point we were talking about earlier, where if you call it by the letter of the law, it's not going to be fun to watch. Leave it here. Punch It Audio is next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up top of the hour. Peter, what are you going to talk about? Yeah, we're heading into the All-Star break. It's time to give sort of a State of the Union in the NBA. And, of course, the uh, Trailblazers uh, sent out a press release today. Anthony Simon's injury. We got an update on that. Want to talk about what that means. Interesting. Uh, how important is he short-term, long-term? Are you, you know, because a lot for a while there, people talked about Anthony Simons as being – you know the replacement after C.J. McCollum left. Are are you are you uh, softening on that? And anybody see him as a guy that can take another step forward? Uh, I mean, he he could. I think he definitely has a place as a very good player in the league. But it, what we're seeing, it's it's Damon C.J. Part two. It doesn't necessarily work. So I like him as a player. Like him as a guy. You know, he's definitely a great scorer. But I think ultimately, if the Blazers are going to make that proverbial proverbial big move it's going to be Anthony Simons that's the guy they're going to part with keep an eye on that Peter Sampson and the pulse will be all over that coming up uh tonight on uh in just about half an hour from now uh we're going to play some punch it audio um Steven you want to do it here or chill I uh yeah, we can do it here let's do it here you want to do it here yeah. let's play some punch and audio we interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Kevin Durant, he got a little wispy talking about his time in Brooklyn. Four years there. Here's Durant at his introductory news conference or his first news conference as a member of the Phoenix Suns. Punch it. It was a lot of ups and downs, but I loved the grind. So, and everybody in Brooklyn loved the grind too. So I built a family over there. They're going to always be a part of my journey. Uh, so we didn't accomplish what we wanted to accomplish as far as winning the championship, just like I told him, but I enjoyed the grind. And everybody there, we tried our hardest every day, regardless of what was going on in the media, what was going on with our teammates. Everybody who's in that gym, we grinded. So I love those guys. I get emotional to talk about them because 
that was a special four years of my career coming off of Achilles, and they helped me through a lot. So I don't have anything. Um, So yeah, it was terrible how some stuff went down, but at the end of the day, I love to grind. And we all love to grind there in Brooklyn, and I wish them the best going forward. They got a bright future. Does he love to grind or what, Kevin? Kevin loves Durant. the grind, loves the grind. <laughs> That's gonna be a new drinking game. How about you know, drink when he says the grind? I couldn't believe he kept saying it. Um, you know, look, I get it. Uh, you know, the, the pinnacle for the Brooklyn Nets in the Durant era came at the end of the 2020-2021 season. They were 48-24. and It's their best season with Durant there. Beat the Celtics in the in the first round of the playoffs. Lost in the conference semifinals to the Bucks in seven games. But it became evident with Kyrie Irving and it, it just wasn't going to work. And I think it's I think it's a casualty of the super team era. And I don't think a lot of people outside of Brooklyn were disappointed to see it to see it not work. Also in the NBA, Adam Silver doing some talking on ESPN. He was asked about players demanding trades. Kyrie did it. We've seen others do it. Can the league fix that? Here's Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA. Punch it. It's not a new issue. I think it gets, um, uh, there's more attention focused on it than ever before because of all the, the, the fishbowl effect of social media and the opportunity for every single comment to be magnified in an incredible way. So, I mean, it, again, go back to earliest days of this league, guys have demanded trades. Having said that, of course you want players to honor their contracts. You want the extent that, that there's always going to be discussions that go on behind scenes, uh, behind the scenes between players and management about whether it's the right situation for them. But you never want to get to the point where a player's literally demanding that he goes somewhere else. And so, you know, again, something we're discussing in collective bargaining. There aren't, again, any simple fixes here, or else we would have, we would have done it. I think, on the other hand, a certain amount of player movement. Now, I'm not focusing about uh, on demands, but. You know, in, in this, this year, for example, in the week leading up to the trade, trade deadline, something like like 12% of the league changed teams. And that's something that we were intentional about because we shortened contracts. Um, we, we recognize that that ability for teams to rebuild for now, it's not just about players, but for teams um, to make changes in direction, that that's healthy around the league. So, again, it's about finding the right balance around player movement, but but trade player trade demands are a bad thing we don't want them to happen yeah. and we got to focus and we got to focus on that and make sure that that everyone is honoring their agreements i i'm not sure i totally agree that adam silver is as concerned about this as he's saying he is i think the trade deadline becomes an, a day of renewed interest for the nba and i think kyrie irving going to dallas and kevin durant going to phoenix and all of the trades that were made you know, they, they fan the flames of the NBA in February. I think it's a bigger bigger deal than the All-Star break. It's, it's, you know, it's a moment where teams that are maybe on the outside looking in can suddenly become a factor. And while it may not be good for the league to have players demanding trades, there's no arguing that Kyrie Irving to the Dallas Mavericks 
created a lot of eyeballs and a lot of interest and some news cycle for Adam Silver's league. So I don't think he's all that upset. On that note, Ben Golliver talking about the Phoenix Suns with Kevin Durant. How does it fit? Here's Golliver. Punch it. Katie was always kind of the guy who had the stirred face, the straight face. You know, he's not really a big celebration type of guy. Then he goes to Brooklyn, and he thinks he's going to have this amazing partnership and buddy-buddy relationship with Kyrie Irving. And it turns out Katie plays basketball, and Kyrie Irving just makes distractions off the court. It really didn't gel as well as they had thought. What he's going to get in Phoenix from the top down is a whole bunch of hoopers, right? Monty Williams, former hooper, who's just all about his business, no nonsense. That's Devin Booker. That's Chris Paul, uh, and that's Kevin Durant as well. I think it's going to be a great personality fit. I can't wait to see these guys on the court together, and I think we're going to know soon. You know, I think there's a chance, you know, within the first five games of KD playing with that group, whether or not they should be the favorites in the West. But I would pick them over Denver in a matchup just because Denver doesn't have a great matchup for Kevin Durant positionally. Uh, like I said, I'm leaning towards Phoenix against Golden State as well. And, uh, you know, a young team like Memphis that's super athletic, that has a great home court advantage, I mean, that's going to be a tough out for anybody, but typically experience wins in the postseason. And I do think, you know, Phoenix has probably got the inside track right now to come out of the West. Look, I like Ben Golliver's basketball brain, and it's hard to argue when a team has the best player in a series, it's hard to pick against them. Michael Irvin is denying the charges or the allegations made towards him and giving his side of the story. Coming up, uh, I'll play Irving's comments, and we'll talk about Irvin's comments, and we'll talk about uh, the NFL Network's decision to shut him down for the Super Bowl. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Tomorrow's show is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to do a couple few fun things. Among them, I'm going to have a couple of high school basketball coaches in the state of Oregon on the show tomorrow. Uh, among them, Heather Seeley Roberts, the head coach at Lincoln. Tomorrow night, uh, Lincoln will be playing for the outright PIL championship. Seeley Roberts is the only woman to be the head coach of a uh, boys' varsity team in the state of Oregon. Right now, she has got her team in, in contention, to, and she uh, would like a shot at the state title. We'll have her on the program. And I don't want to just talk about her team and her season and the fact that she is the only woman coaching a varsity team. I want to talk to her about the year off that kids had a couple years ago as the basketball season got interrupted. She took her own kids to the state of Utah to play. She's returned. What did she find when she came back to the state of Oregon? Uh, you know, the, did the development get interrupted? Was it was it a big nothing burger? I don't know. We'll talk to Heather Seeley Roberts on tomorrow's show. Also, Marshall Cho, the varsity coach at Lake Oswego High School, will be joining us to talk about what he sees. Now, both of those coaches were in the Les Schwab Invitational. And I'm going to ask them both about Bronny James and the circus around the Sierra Canyon program. What did they make of him? How good is he? Um, you know, they, they had behind-the-scenes interactions. So Marshall Cho and Heather Seeley Roberts, both of them on the show tomorrow to talk about what they're seeing in the state of Oregon when it comes to high school basketball. Michael Irvin 
was in the news prior to the Super Bowl, and he was pulled from the NFL Network's programming. Uh, something he said in a hotel lobby, something he did. Michael Irvin is denying uh, any kind of assault and inappropriate behavior, and he's giving his side of the story. Here's Irvin. You know, I want to make sure everybody has a ride home. I'll pay for everybody to get a drive home. And, and since I was leaving, I offered my hotel room. Uh, I said, you know, you, 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 you guys, if you want to, you can stay here and sleep it off because I am leaving. And, and, and when I, we get, when we left the rock bar, we went back to the hotel room. We were in the hotel room for a short while. I, um, I, I, Vince was there with me. Vince, Vince is a guy I grew up with since about, he used to be my point guard in playing basketball since about eighth or ninth grade. He was with me and, and we were all in the room. And, and Vince said, hey man, I have to go. I got an early morning, I got an early morning meeting. I said, okay, I got. All right, so Michael Irvin is denying uh, anything that uh, happened. Uh, he just scored a win in court too. A judge has ordered that the Arizona hotel has to turn over any video it has of the interaction that the Hall of Famer had with a woman that led to his removal from the NFL Network Super Bowl coverage last week. Now, he was staying at the Phoenix Marriott. His attorney has requested footage from the hotel, believing that it will help exonerate him. Um, the judge has granted the motion, also ordered that the hotel must provide the name of his accuser, as well as anybody else who may have filed a complaint against him. Um, the uh, judge also ruled that the hotel must reveal the names of the NFL employees who received the complaints. So uh, it's interesting. Apparently, Irvin met the woman after she called him over in the hotel lobby to introduce herself. Eyewitnesses described the interaction as jovial and completely harmless. I've seen a cell phone video of their interaction. Irvin's attorney wrote in the motion that the interaction lasted less than a minute and that Michael Irvin went to his room alone and fell asleep. He was then pulled from the Super Bowl coverage after there were complaints from the woman over the meeting. Uh, Irvin is suing the Marriott and his accuser for defamation, claiming he had done nothing wrong. Neither the Marriott nor NFL officials have said publicly what the allegations actually are. I saw the video. I don't know if you guys have seen the video. He appears to just be moving across the lobby. He just has a verbal conversation with somebody seated, and it looked to me in the video, now we don't have the full picture because we just have one cell phone video that I've seen. It looked to me like he was talking to multiple people in the room. So it'll be really interesting to see uh, what happens with this and whether or not Michael Irvin is going to get a big settlement. I kind of suspect that the NFL Network had other issues with Michael Irvin, and this to them was their opportunity to uh, kind of be done with him, and they seized it. And I don't know if this is the right way to go about it. I think they're going to end up having to uh, to pay him and settle with him. He's filed a $100 million defamation suit against Marriott, and... Uh, this is going to be interesting to see this uh, go down. Now, he's denied any misconduct, and uh, he said uh, initially that he didn't remember the meeting because he had a few drinks. 
Uh, that's interesting as well. Uh, so what we all should probably do with this is we should all probably wait until those videos are released where we can see and hear everything that was said because it's possible that Michael Irvin said something here that the NFL Network wasn't comfortable with. It's also possible that he did nothing. Leave it here. Get the bald-faced truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I was doing a little bit of research on the Michael Irvin incident during the commercial break. And the story nobody's talking about is that everybody's assuming this is related to Michael Irvin's interaction in the lobby with a uh, another guest of the hotel. He's saying he doesn't know uh, what the big deal is. It was a 45-second exchange with uh, a woman in the lobby. And witnesses that were in the lobby are backing Irvin's claim, saying, hey, there was nothing that really happened there. But as I read more about the allegations with the Irvin incident, it appears as though police were not involved, nobody's pressing charges, but it's possible one of the theories that's out there is that the interaction that he had in the lobby is not what the NFL Network is talking about when it says it wasn't comfortable with uh, Irvin's behavior at the hotel. That uh, he, he something may have happened between the time that he left the lobby and his hotel room. So really interesting to kind of, you know, we're all sort of looking about, we're looking at this incident as if it has to do with the interaction he had, very public interaction he had with the woman in the lobby. Is it possible here, guys, that something happened after he left the lobby? Because that, there are several people going, there's no way it could have been anything that happened in the lobby had to be Michael Irvin's actions in the elevator, after he left the elevator, in his room, later that night that Marriott is upset about. Now, I could be wrong, but um, they're, uh, the hotel is saying they have the full exchange on video. So it's really interesting um, that Michael Irvin, who uh, you know has had a nice career, after football on television is in the as it as at the center of this thing uh, how do you how does this thing end guys yeah it just seems like there's something missing from the story like we don't have all the pieces um i think it ends with michael irvin uh the nfl network getting out of getting away from michael irvin and i think you're right like irvin he's caught on with first take a little bit you know him and Stephen a smith yelling at each other i think he just continues to do that sort of thing but uh, the NFL sort of distanced himself away from him um, as, you know, he's obviously been in trouble in the past when he was a player, and you just kind of don't want to, you know, the NFL already has that reputation, so I think they're going to try to distance himself, like you said, and uh, Irvin will just kind of be bouncing around yeah. doing things like on ESPN. Here's what the Dallas Morning News is reporting. Dallas Morning News is saying that a woman complained about Irvin's behavior during an encounter that occurred on Sunday evening in Arizona. They're also saying that the hotel staff approached Irvin about the incident 
and asked him to move to hotels due to the incident in question. So there's no doubt that there's an incident here, but the question is, Irvin is kind of pointing us to the interaction he had with the woman in the lot in the lobby. They're not saying that. Nobody at the Dallas Morning News or the Marriott is saying that the incident in the lobby is actually what is caused the Marriott to ask him to change hotels and not what the NFL Network pointed to when it said uh, we're not comfortable with him being on air. Is it possible something happened after? I mean, like, I I think that is what everything's pointing to because, I, and don't get me wrong, like the people, the bystanders there, everyone that interacted with them in the lobby, like in theory, something could have been missed. But, I mean, I, I saw a compilation video. It was like four different people that were in that lobby. Oh, yeah, we offered him a drink. He said, no, I'm working tomorrow. We got a picture. Everything was cool. So I think it is maybe pointing that direction, John. Yeah, so like, you know, in, in some of the... Speculation is that he got on the elevator and encountered somebody, and, and that person is alleging that he did something inappropriate. Others have said, did he, uh, you know, did he encounter someone between the elevator and his room? Did he order room service and do allegedly do something inappropriate? Uh, the Marriott's not talking. Only Michael Irvin's talking at this point, and Michael Irvin's saying, "Hey, that interaction in the lobby was nothing." But as you look back at the original report. They don't say that it was an interaction in the lobby. They say that it was an interaction in the hotel that happened uh, that late Sunday night. And they asked him to change hotels. Now, I've stayed in a lot of hotels. They would only ask you to change hotels if they were alerted to something that was a potential serious crime or uh, a safety issue. For a fellow resident there or an employee. So I have to think that the hotel staff approaching him, asking him to move hotels, huge red flag right there. Like, you know, look, it, he's innocent until proven guilty. There's no criminal charge either. Police were not called. But I just feel like the witnesses are trying to support Irvin's story in the lobby. I'm not sure that's the incident in the lobby. So. I guess we'll find out who's on the grassy knoll and what happened. But uh, and especially, you know. I mean, especially like they're not going to ask a guy like Michael Irvin, who is so well known, like in the celebrity world, like in the football world. Like they're not going to bring it up as a big issue if they didn't have something to kick him out for, right? Like they're not just going to kick him out for no reason. That just doesn't. It, there's just something that isn't adding up right now. It's not adding up. There's also some speculation that the group in the lobby may have been there to target celebrities and potentially make accusations, but nobody else in the lobby is going, hey, Irvin did something inappropriate. Like you'd think if it was an orchestrated effort to frame Michael Irvin, that somebody would have come forth and called the police and said he did X, Y, Z. So I don't think it's – I'm just wondering if uh, the 30-second interaction that Irvin is talking about is – the actual incident that the hotel is talking about. So I think there's much more to be reported on this front because the witnesses are all saying, yeah, he was great. He was a great guy. We took pictures, we, you know, all that stuff. But I'm reading the literal quote from the hotel and the original Dallas Morning News story, and I'm going, wait a minute. Why are we assuming that it's the interaction what if it was something that was done or said, alleged, alleged in the 
elevator or later after that. And he's, man, this I wish there were a police report on this. Yeah, he seems too willing to like give up the information of like, oh yeah, it was so good in the lobby. Like that it just it comes across as skeptical to me. Like, why are you why are you even talking about this? If you were so innocent, I feel like you wouldn't be out in the public like saying these things and we wouldn't be looking at these videos. It it would just be like known like I'm gonna you know, I didn't do anything. Like we don't have to announce it. I just feel like him putting it out there like he's almost defended himself too much already. I, and I think sometimes, like the celebrity the athletes and entertainers, they have to be careful uh, interaction. You never know, like who's going to accuse you of what. But according to the Dallas Morning News, this is what they said: a woman complained about Urban's behavior during an encounter that occurred on Sunday evening in Arizona. Doesn't say anything about the lobby. Doesn't say that it was a verbal encounter. It, his behavior during an encounter. Then it says the hotel staff approached him about the incident and asked him to move hotels. No doubt that there's an incident here that is in question, but we're not, I'm not sure what it is. Like, I, I don't think we should rush to uh, assume that it's the conversation that he had in the lobby that is being alleged here. And oh, by the way, if it's a serious enough thing, the police should have been involved. Like, the fact that the police weren't involved uh, raises an eyebrow you know, for me, because I get it, like, maybe the hotel didn't want police coming to the hotel and a big investigation or whatnot, but if you're going to ask the guy to move hotels, it it had better be a thing that is serious enough to involve law enforcement, and if somebody is leveling an accusation toward Michael Irvin or anyone else that's going to cost them their job, I would, uh, I would sure think that it would be something that would rise to the level of needing law enforcement on the scene, so to be determined on this front. Let's remember he's innocent until proven guilty. Let's remember that. But let's also know that we should not jump to conclusions about what the incident was. It's possible that the incident is not the interaction that happened in the lobby. I'm not putting those things together, but I think a lot of people are. And I've seen that repeated over and over by Bleacher Report and MSN and TMZ and Fox News. Everybody's repeating the same narrative. Here, this witnesses say there was an interaction and then I go back and I'm looking I'm going yeah it doesn't say that it was the woman in the lobby it just says there was an incident so let's leave the door open for other possibilities there Peter Sampson the pulse coming up tomorrow we got a great show for you great Friday show we'll have a lot of fun we'll play what's your peeve on tomorrow's show plus a couple of great guests who are coming down the pipeline we'll go to San Diego to take the pulse of San Diego State sports uh, last couple days, we visited with Lehigh Sal Hamilton and Mac Ingle today, the SMU professor, and both were kind of saying, "Hey, you know, we're not ready for the Pac-12. It's not, you know, we're not gonna, we're not ready to go big time." Uh, I think that's really interesting, an interesting perspective to get. I want you to leave it right here as Peter Sampson and the Pulse are coming up. The bald-faced truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.